Podcast, the only book club podcast equipped with a lifeboat. We've learned our lessons. We watched the Titanic films. Not films, plural. Has there ever been a second film about the Titanic? I, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, we saw that one movie. That one movie by James Cameron. So we know that you need ample lifeboats. We've got extras. Yes. We've got spares. Are you ready to be tossed about by the ocean waves, Amanda? Yeah, as long as we can make it to the lifeboat, right? <laughs> That's true. Otherwise, you're in for really quite a miserable time. You don't want to underestimate the ocean. Exactly. It looks so peaceful from afar. That's what, you mm-hmm. know, that's what tricks people, lulls them yep. into security with the ocean. Yep. Tranquil. That's, that's why I do not swim in the deep ends. <laughs> right, right. Stay to the shallow ends. I just need my shins to be wet anyway. You know, I don't need exactly. to go full body. Just need a little <laughs> little taste. If you don't know why we're discussing ocean swimming depths and lifeboats and such, that is because you've stumbled upon a book club episode on the second half of Piranesi, which is a fantasy novel by Susanna Clark. That's what we'll be discussing and analyzing today. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. We do have social media accounts we'll plug up top at uh, Facebook and Instagram. And that is at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word, so we're easy to search and find. Give us follows on those platforms if you want to just check out what we're reading, keep up with the reading schedule, etc. All the good stuff, we post the updates there. And I'm currently behind, but, you know, always crawling to get back on schedule. Um, Keep an eye on the (laughs) podcast feed where you found this. That's where we post the updates and consistently post the book club episodes. Book club episodes like today's are our spoiler-filled episodes, so if you don't want to hear the second half of Piranesi spoiled or maybe you just clicked on this episode out of curiosity or something then feel free to hit pause now and come back later when you've read the book if you want us to spoil it or you just want to hear the discussion about the entirety of the novel generally then you're in the right place so stick with us if that's okay Uh, we also at this point have the book recommendation for this one and book club part one up in the feed so that's always the cadence and flow of these episodes we recommend it and then we do two parts analyzing it and today again we'll be spoiling the whole thing did you have any content warnings there is one scene uh that has a death but it's not there's like a tiny bit of violence but it's not very intense yeah it's uh her, her descriptions of death and stuff it's not i would say egregious or anything so yeah 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 and there's obviously because in the first half this was basically revealed though not quite there's some discussion of i don't know kidnapping i guess we'd say or like grooming I'm not sure what the technical terms these days would be yeah yeah, but, but it's not... She doesn't go into great detail about that either. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, like any mystery story kind of hinted at, but definitely not yeah, grotesque or intense or anything like that. So, okay, with those warnings out of the way, shall we get started, Amanda? You ready to rock? Let's, let's do it. Get on the lifeboat then. Time to head out. <laughs> Brave the ocean <laughs> waves of uh, Piranesi. Uh, we'll start with our first segment for book club episodes, which is a 60-second summary challenge where each of us tries to summarize what we read in... In 60 seconds, did we decide it's going to be the person who chose that goes first, so it's me? Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Put the burden on the choose. On the chooser? On the person who chose? (laughs) Not a word. (laughs) That's fine. Okay, I'm going to do... I should have looked up the names of these, but that's okay. I'll do do roughly my best, Um, and I've got my timer ready, so I will start now. Piranesi in the second half discovers through his journaling that... 
and his memories that the other is actually Ketterly, who is a scientist slash disciple of Arn Sales, the uh, cult leader kind of guy, and he has kidnapped him. So Piranesi, it's revealed, is actually a journalist who wants to write a book about great intellectual minds who are contrarians. And he was researching Arn Sales and interviewed Ketterly. But Ketterly kidnapped him and put him in the labyrinth in the other world because he wants him to research the great knowledge. He realized that Rose Sorensen was alone. No one knew where he was. And he was like a great, young, healthy person to catalog things. He discovers this. They have a conflict. And the police detective, whose name I forget, also shows up. Ketterly is killed by the ocean wave because he tries to kill Piranesi and the police officer and fails to do so. After that, the police officer does convince Piranesi after some, you know, back and forth and trying to, like, comfort him to leave and come back to the real world, though Piranesi is forever changed and isn't fully himself, isn't Matthew Rose Sorensen anymore. That's one minute on the dot. Nice. They covered most of it. Yeah, I feel like I missed... (laughs) Without looking at the section names, I do feel like I missed a couple plot twists, but I uh, dove straight for the ending. Went straight to the yeah. the main <laughs> the main bits. Okay, so that's my 60-second mm-hmm. summary of the second half. Are you ready to do yours? Uh, yep, I'm ready. All right, All right you can start now. Uh, so once um, Piranesi f- figures out that Ketterly had um, essentially tricked him, into believing that Ketterly was dissenting against Arn Sales, um, and he brings him to this uh, labyrinthine world. He um, begins to hate uh, Ketterly, but he decides to um, like ultimately forgive him. He warns him of the great flood coming, very biblical, um, but he knows that Ketterly is going to try to use that to kill Raphael, who is the uh, police lady looking for him. And they... Um, ultimately, um, Ketterly dies because he um, tries to chase after the raft that is floating away from him rather than trying to get to high ground, um, which is ironic because he is afraid of water. Um, in the end, he does go, uh, Piranesi does go back, um, although he seems to be kind of like um, unhappy. He, he's having a hard time really settling in. He brings back time. Ritter at one point. Yeah. Yeah, that was a critical little plot beat at the end too, and I think the tone you're just you just got there, which is just that it's an unsettling return for sure. Yeah, yeah, and he has to like tell Ritter he can't leave him there because he's like, then I'd have to feed you, dude. And- <laughs> yeah, you're in. Inca- you're old, man. I'm I'm young and capable, and I know how to make seaweed leather or seaweed. <laughs> yeah, you know, seaweed every food, seaweed soup, seaweed leather, seaweed jerky. What other things can be made from seaweed? What else can seaweed do? He was using it as, like, tape for his glasses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, letting it dry and all kinds of applications. Seaweed clothing, all yeah. the best stuff. Excellent. Do we leave anything out of our two summaries? Obviously, it's just a little challenge for both of us to do our best to cover everything. And, yeah, I guess the only thing I want to mention that we, I think we both teased is just the ending is he's, you know, he's kind of in neither world, so to speak, kind of unsettled. Yeah. He becomes like a third persona, is is how he describes himself. He's a third person. Yeah, a person trying to put both both lives together. Okay, shall we jump into some quotes? Let's do it. Let's do it. So, uh, quotes for clarification is our next segment. This is when we both discuss and give some quotes from the story that we found meaningful, impactful, or, you know, just things to discuss, uh, discussion points. Let's uh, do some more Arn Sales chatting. I've got a quote about Mr. Arn Sales. Though he does show up not as much in the second half, because he literally appears in the first. Uh, But there are some still, I thought, critical kind of, I don't know, 
revelations in, in the back half. On page 151, we get as close to an explanation of his, I don't know, like thinking or methodology for this pre-rational existence as he can. And it, it reads, a picture it said, aren't sales like rainwater lying in a field. The next day, the field is dry. Where has the rainwater gone? Some has evaporated into the air. Some has been drunk by plants and animals, but some has seeped down into the earth. This happens over and over again. For decades, centuries, millennia, the water seeping down makes a crack in the rock under the earth, then it wears the crack into a hole, then it wears the hole into the cave entrance, a kind of door, in fact. Beyond the door, the water keeps flowing, and it hollows out caverns and carves out pillars. Somewhere, said Iron Sales, there must be a passage, a door between us and wherever magic had gone. It might be very small, it might not be entirely stable, like an entrance to an underground cave, it might be in danger of collapse, but it would be there, and it would be possible to find it. So that's kind of his it was approach, I guess, to this sort of magic system or this. They call it pre-rational thinking, right? They never they right. don't call it magic. Yeah, I don't think they do. They would hate that term, you know. It's yeah. What, what does he say to the police detective? Sort of, he gets frustrated and says, "Why do people always say it's about belief? You know, it's not a belief system. It's like science. <laughs> it's like a thing that you can, you know, apply rules to and perform. As long as you have a decapitated old head, though, that's critical. <laughs> that can tell you how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You need some old advice. But I, yeah, I think this is a. I like this kind of middle ground it's expository but also kind of approachable and metaphorical which i like i don't think that in fantasy books every system of magic has to be kind of like scholarly in the sense of with detailed notes and rules and this is um i don't know where i first heard this and i can't remember in relation to what media it was maybe like star wars or something but it's uh, i think some people in the fantasy sci-fi camp can get a little too obsessive about rules and less obsessive about interpreting things <laughs> and like doing story work in the literary sense versus just being extremely like plot and rule bound and just adhering strictly to those things. I think obviously if a movie establishes something and then, you know, completely disregards it for no reason, you know, that's obvious critiques can be leveraged there. But I, I think this kind of explanation is fine with me, especially in a story like this that feels more symbolic than anything else. Did you find the answers satisfying in the back half? Yeah, I felt that it was um, good enough. Yeah, for sure. Um, the I also what I really liked about the the back half is with the introduction of of Raphael, who's also kind of a misfit in in her right. own world. Um, but she brings an, a new perspective that I, I really like. She's like, oh, this is such like a, the ideal world, which Piranesi's like, yeah. And then she's like, but actually there's violence here too. Like, yeah, and Piranesi's yeah. like, no, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. I have perfect hair. <laughs> I've been lugging around these skeletons and everything's fine. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, and I, I think that the, the sort of, the seances that they perform they're again mm -hmm. briefly suggested like Arn Sales brings the police detective in obviously and um, Ketterly the, the scene where he brings in Rose Sorensen should we call him Piranesi or you know, I guess like you said he's a combination <laughs> I don't, we can yeah. call him either I suppose but when he brings yeah. in the journalist version it's it's again there's suggestions there's kind of loud chanting but there's it's not like other fantasy books where you get I, I feel like this is just what 
bogs down those long series in some people's view where it's sort of like mm-hmm. I don't want to do a trilogy epic length you know tons of different back rules and technicalities and all that but, you know and that's obviously what fantasy lovers I think love often is something intricate lengthy you know with all these rules and stuff I just think that this one's execution of a simpler metaphorical version or something is mm-hmm. quite powerful and I yeah I just wish more fantasy was like this or I suppose I just wish more people gave fantasy like this a try though I yeah. understand why people are so put off by the epic epic stuff yeah and um <clears throat> I was looking up because um in the in the novel there were several references to parent Piranesi, I guess, because it's Italian. Um, That's the, that's <laughs> <it>. Okay. <laughs> but it's an actual person, because there were references yeah, yeah. to, like, oh, he's making fun of me. But, yes, yeah, so I, I looked it up, because I was like, who is this person that I've never heard of? And he was um, an architect um, who made drawings of uh, prisons as labyrinths. Yeah, right. So Interesting. I was like, oh, that is pretty fitting. <laughs> yeah, trapped in his own, yeah, labyrinthian. Well, you know, it's a comfortable prison. You learn to love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Find beauty yeah. in it. Yeah, that's that's actually a fitting enough illusion. I, I, th- in the review we're going to discuss later that I read, that was explained. So until then, uh, I had not looked it up. So uh, yeah, uh, crit- yeah. <laughs> critical illusion, really. Let's do um, yeah. one of your quotes. What do you want to talk about? Sure. Um, mine is from page 128, and this is um, when he realizes that somebody else is in the labyrinth, is in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, this morning, I was on my way from the third northern hall to the 16th vestibule. I passed out of the first northern hall and into the first vestibule. I took a step or two, then stopped. Something had just happened. What was it? What had just happened? I took a couple of steps back into the doorway and breathed in. There it was again. A scent. A perfume of lemon geranium leaves. Hyacinths and narcissi. Narcissi. <clears throat> so I, I chose that one because I was like immediately I was like that's so um, animalistic in nature the way that he responds to scent like when you see a dog or an animal like kind of just like perk up and be like there's something different there's a, a slight change in the air the sense of danger that comes with that um, it, it made me think of uh, Piranesi as uh, or Piranesi as a mm-hmm. uh, as, as very animalistic in nature, which really makes sense because he's so in tune with the nature around him, um, like his relationship with the albatross family and like talking to the birds and stuff like that and, and his reverence for the tides and everything else. I just thought that that was such a nice little reminder of his connection to the elements of the house, the, the nature of the house itself. Um, yeah. And, and also to highlight how... how very different he is as a person from like Ketterly or even Raphael or anybody else that he's going to encounter. He really is a different person from Rose Sorensen at this point. Yeah, it's it is a fascinating blend since we don't fully get or know who Rose Sorensen was. So you can't tell when he has these moments in the labyrinth and the halls when he seems to be another person or, you know, obviously he has like memories and opinions that seemingly a person in that setting could not develop just because they have no context for it or no background. So it is, it is. um, And I think this is maybe where the, um, 
ambivalence isn't the right word. The, but the the kind of unsettling middle where the conclusion is, though I think you know it's there's some real beauty to the ending. But it's it's clearly not you know he's not totally comfortable being back in the in the real world, and I think that that's pretty fitting because again in the Piranesi in the halls and being that person, it's like he's a confusing puzzle blend of a man who doesn't fully you know it's like he's so jumbled up that you can't even tell who he really is or you know what remains which yeah i think i found that characterization throughout to be pretty compelling yeah me too with again no like answers at the end it's not really a book that i mean it answers the main points of course it's not a confusing book but i don't think that it's going to leave you with clear interpretations per se yeah yeah, it, it'll it'll perk you up a little bit at the end, especially with Raphael as a character, because you're gonna be like, did is she gonna stay? Is she gonna right, right? Because Piranesi was like, yo, <laughs> don't keep going back. You're never gonna come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, she does also seem to appreciate the beauty, which thematically we'll right. cover in a later segment. But that seems yeah. very important too. That's yeah. you know part of how she kind of empathizes with him, or she's very patient with him because she also thinks it's kind of a it's gotten a lure to it. The right. the place. Let's um right. let's talk more Piranesi characterization. Do you want to discuss his um stint with violence? <laughs> Yeah. His violent fantasies. So this is a clear turn for him. It's right after he discovers that Ketterly had kidnapped him and trapped him here. Um, he says, this is on 189, but of course the other has said that he will not be here on Thursday. He is never here on Thursdays. He'll be safe in the other world. That does not matter. Anger makes me resourceful. On Tuesday, the other will come to meet me. It is our regular meeting day. I will snatch him and bind him with fishing nets. With these hands, I will do it. I have two fishing nets. They are made of a synthetic polymer and very strong. I shall bind him to the statue in the south, second southwestern hall. For two days he will be bound. He will be in torment knowing the flood is coming. Perhaps I'll give him water to drink. Perhaps I will not. Perhaps I will say to him, soon you will have plenty of water. And on Thursday he will watch the tides pouring in through the doors and he will scream and scream and I will laugh and laugh. I will laugh as long and as loud as he laughed at Matthew Rosorenson when he brought him here. Uh, this is where I lost myself. So then he, he like physically... You know, through through his revenge fantasies, he's like physically, you know, exhausted and right. suffering and everything. And I, this is, a, I just think, a very strong characterization paragraph because it's, you know, it's the most intense moment he's had. He's otherwise very methodical, kind, and scientific. But I like how those things still creep into this paragraph. Like mm-hmm. he he does also fantasize about maybe giving him some water. <laughs> he then, so it's like he he can't quite quit that part of himself, yeah. this caretaker yep. persona. Uh, I also love that his taunt will be soon you will have plenty of water which is just a really you know it's like a straightforward kind of lame taunt or pun and he's also planning it out he's like thinking through in the future what kind of pun insult he could deliver in in anger (laughs) um and so yeah it's the anger makes me resourceful line is very it's a perfect combination of what he's experiencing which is you know he's a very like resourceful person and so that's how he channels his anger into sort of overt planning even planning his puns i just found it, it was an interesting moment couple pages for the book because it's just out of character for him but obviously i think the plot prompts it in a you know pretty understandable way i enjoyed this a little bit i did too it was it was out of character but also it's just like it's almost like a like a teenager or something somebody very naive and immature planning out their revenge yeah, in some yeah. ways right so it's it's still like 
it's not as threatening as I think he he thinks it is. <laughs> right, of course, and it and it's delivered too in his his tone. We discuss this on part one a lot, but he he does have kind of a neutral scientific, almost like nineteenth century scientist register, and so it's just difficult to. It's difficult to write in a fully intimidating way with that exact, like, voice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I I enjoyed that scene as well. And then, like, I liked that he also pointed out that he had lost himself um, at that point. So, again, like, this is just another piece of himself that, like, his identity that he struggles with. So he's... Matthew Sor- Matthew Rose Sorensen, and then he's Piranesi, and then he's this uh, revenge-seeking person, and then he's this other person in the real world. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's pretty pretty interesting the 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 stuff that Clark does with identity with Piranesi. I think. Yeah, yeah, and it's the conclusion. I think again plays with that theme pretty well, where yeah. you're not quite sure where he's going to end up. I think there's a few images in the final few pages. I didn't really pull quotes for this, but that leave it. I'd say there's a certain kind of quiet comfort to it, or like a resolution to the ending, and in, in a nice way. But yeah, there's no comfort of like the the book. Of course, doesn't settle for a family reunion, for example, or something like. Right. Oh, it's you know I'm having Christmas dinner with my family again, and it's my sisters. And it's nothing like that. It's, you know, right. much, much less settled, which is nice. Um, what other quotes? Um, I chose one from page 210. <clears throat> it's an image that I just thought was really nice. Um, this is after the flood. Our clothes mm. were plastered to our bodies with wet. My hair, which is dark and curly, was as full of droplets as a cloud. I rained every time I moved. That description that I rained every time I moved, it was so, like, such a tone and such, like, that's definitely the voice of Piranesi as a character. Like, those little Mm. quick one-liners where it's, like, just so full of, of imagery and just unique ideas for somebody who's supposed to be very, you know, methodical, research-based, scientific-minded, you don't think of them as having these little bursts of, of creative ingenuity. But I just loved that image of like every time he would shake his head because it's so full of water, he's like a rain cloud. I just thought that was so clever and yeah. and really well done. Yeah, it's the it's kind of the straightforward imagery that a person who with no vocabulary can can muster or summon. Exactly. You know, yeah. because it's it's, an, it's that's yeah, it's an interesting voice as a narrative because obviously he remembers some things, but it's it's selective on her part, right? She can choose the author, um, Susanna Clark, which things to include or which memories to give him or not give him. And it's just it's just well balanced. It involves moments like that, like you said, of just kind of perfect narrative voice, like a little hint of a mind, but it's not it's obviously limited, right, by what he can remember. Exactly. And and also it's his language also reflects kind of the environment that he's in where it's it's very spare. It's not like he's got a whole lot of vocabulary that he can pull from and there's not right. a lot of the environment that he can pull from. It's just the upstairs with clouds, the downstairs with tides, and then the middle yeah. where he lives with statues. Um, and it's just, but there's still beauty in all of that. Just like there's still beauty in the language that he uses. Yeah, yeah, limited but 
powerful. And like you said, it's exactly. beautiful. He finds the beauty in it certainly either way. At least he's got the shadows of ideas through the statues, which I think he comments on with the detective. At some point, she, you know, kind of insults the halls indirectly in a way. and But I think yeah. it does sink into him, too, a little bit. That it's like, I don't really... I'm seeing what a, the shadow of what a mountain or river would be. I can only... You know, they're beautiful, but it's not... It's also not the heart of the source or something. The original thing, article. Uh, the only other quote I had on 216, um, though, again, I think the final little chapters when he's back in the real world would be, you know, there's worthy stuff to discuss there. But his response to Ketterly's death, I thought, was the final really meaningful character beat that we needed to unpack. Um, when he finds the corpse, he puts the, his, it says, broken head into my lap and cradled it. Your good looks are gone, I told him, but you mustn't worry about it. This unsightly condition is only temporary. Don't be sad. Don't fear. I will place you somewhere where the fish and the birds can strip away all this broken flesh. It will soon be gone. Then you will be a handsome skull and handsome bones. I will put you in good order and you can rest in the sunlight and the starlight. The statues will look down on you with blessing. I'm sorry that I was angry with you. Forgive me. And then he, you know, kind of tends to his corpse and leaves it in a place where the, like he said, the house can consume it, basically. The birds and the animals can take the flesh away and leave the bones. Uh, what, what, like, metaphor should we unpack first here? Or, <laughs> I mean, it's, um, yeah, I don't, it's really, I found it quite intense and very moving. I thought a lot of the, I thought a lot of the scenes in the second part, especially after he died, Ketterly, so like when he's talking with the detective and showing her the halls, this little bit with Ketterly's body. Um, yeah, I found it very moving. I found it really beautiful. I like really grew to appreciate the character that she'd built. And so it felt it felt right that he was kind of delicate and gentle. Like even in the scene where the, he confronts him and, you know, knocks the gun away, it's not like, yeah, you never get the sense Pierness is going to kill him. You just get the right. sense that he's so baffled and kind of like so panicked and baffled and just sort of acting out of that sense in that sort of reactionary way. And right. how did you, I guess, again, I'll leave it up to you maybe to start. Like, how did you read that scene? It was, um, <clears throat> for me, because I was, like, kind of reading through the lens of Piranesi as, like, a almost like a, a religious figure in, in, like, the Christian sense, in a monotheistic sense. It was that act of, like, forgiveness and the final rites kind of, mm-hmm. um, his own final rights where he is, uh, even though Kitterly has done him wrong, um, he's still going to honor him the way that he honors the other, uh, skeletons in the house. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, I looked at it as like that, that final act of, of forgiveness and of like, uh, brotherly love that you might see, like turning the other cheek, that kind of message of, um, of forgiveness that uh, the the Bible teaches in the the mm. latter half, right, right. And there's you know there's some forgiveness with the murder in the first part, right? <laughs> I think <laughs> maybe. <laughs> That's uh yeah. I've never had to. I did for my theology classes just the the New Testament studies. I'm sure I had to do some. I went to a Catholic college, so I'm sure I did some Old Testament stuff. But anyway, yeah, it's. I think that it's just fitting. Uh, the one thing I guess I'd pull out of that description I read or the compliment I'd give it that felt right was the kind of offering to the house because it is it's not become a god to Piranesi that's I think too simple a reading but it's sort of like an entity that he communes with wants to understand is kind of symbiotic or sympathetic with one of the, one of those mm-hmm. two maybe a combination of those things <laughs> at any yeah. rate so I think yeah it felt kind of 
it seemed right to me that he would purposefully make that offering and go out of his way to do it even though obviously he was attacked and you know almost murdered um he did you know Ketterly didn't shoot him but he like cut his head with some shrapnel so there's even you know literal violence done but it yeah i don't know it, it didn't read as false i suppose it's it's fit with who Piranesi is, his kindness, his yeah. kind of soul. And then even just, yeah, in the simplest way, like his approach to the house, the way he views the give and take of the house. And so it all, yeah, it just rang really true. I, I, I thought that moment was kind of beautiful. Yeah, for sure. I um, It was not surprising to me that he, he took that step at all. Yeah, yeah. Felt fitting. Do you want to throw any other quotes out there? Um, I just had like another quote, but it was just to talk about the the beauty of the house, even in how sparing it is, and how uh, Raphael really found the beauty in the halls. Mm. So the coral halls, where um, it was once flooded, but it was no longer flooded, and there was like a bunch of coral that had grown over the the statues. Um, but. Just that scene was, like, I thought really beautiful, and also, like, the description was really beautiful, and um, it, it also shows, like, that was, like, kind of the first inkling that Raphael would continue to come back of her, like, for herself, um, which adds to the, the ending of, like, mm. would he would he stay there, would he not? The, ultimately, he decides not to stay there because... He's like, I would be alone, <laughs> like 100% well, alone. <laughs> that's another way that thematically, it's it's like the, I know I just read the most literal version of him dealing with Ketterly, but it does show the influence of Ketterly in the subtle way of, he, he did have his life revolve around that even if he didn't realize it until then, you know, until the right. absence happened. He didn't quite realize that actually that was a necessary part of his very ritualized, planned, and scheduled meticulous existence was still having this guaranteed brief interaction twice a week. It meant that much to him, and he wasn't ready to, yeah, give it up. Exactly. I wonder, uh, this is a technical question. I don't want to end on these technical plot rule questions. I I just bemoaned them like 20 minutes ago. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But did you interpret, how do you interpret how they left? Because it seems like there was just a place, maybe in the Minotaur Hall or something, there was just like a hallway they walked down. Is that how you read it? I just couldn't, I didn't like reread that scene very closely, but is that how you interpret? She just kind of led him to a, like an exit door or something? Yeah, um, which tied to in in the first half, there was that, weird um sequence where Piranesi is like looking between the minotaurs and he's like it's weird i hear these voices and it's two dudes talking about the mechanics stuff yeah yeah it's like car mechanics maybe yeah gotcha Um, okay so that i think that was meant to be like kind of that thin spot that doorway that maybe fluctuates um, that Arn Sales had um, pointed out before. And right, so, okay. yeah, the way I read it was like, she knows the way because she knows how to get in, which makes getting out perhaps easier for her. And she's able to bring gotcha. him in that way. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that just, I wasn't certain if that was supposed to be some extra. I thought maybe they would go to the darkened room that he discovered and he never ended up taking. Oh, the temple. Of course, yeah, yeah, he never ended up taking him to the temple room, uh, the empty sort of darkened area. I thought maybe yeah. that was the only thing I was hoping the story was going to do something with and it didn't. I think that, you know, I'm okay with it. Not, It's not a plot chart. It doesn't have to pay off like a graph or something. But I thought that was right. the only lingering thing that I was like, oh, I, th- I thought there'd be something there. I mean, obviously... I think thematically part of this book is quite meaningfully that you're not supposed to just 
poke and prod and demand things of these connections of this you know in this case fantastical like other knowledge or something it's not for you to just pry things away uh and so i I get that that there was no payoff to that but i guess i just found it spooky i was curious to see if they'd play with any spookiness but yeah. yeah Um, Any final thoughts, metaphors to unpack, symbols and archetypes to play with, great floods to (laughs) wash away the sinners, the one sinner. (laughs) (laughs) The one sinner. Uh, No, that's it. Okay. My my question for you is is about that. Yeah, great. Okay, let's jump to imaginary essay. This is our final kind of analysis segment where we give some thoughts on the book and how to read it and unpack it. We've each prepared an essay question for the other person to outline and prepare. We don't actually write the essays to be clear. That would be too time consuming. This is just a final discussion point that we that we do and we use. I'll throw mine to you first. I feel like I just left off on a point so let's i'll throw one your way pretty simple question mostly because i always forget to make these and so (laughs) i've made mine late as as ever just like clocking in late um i think i'm just gonna leave the idea of, of obsession open to you i think it was the thematic the thing i was trying to place themes into and trying to work through as a motif the most at the end of the book the thing i was thinking mm-hmm. about most was being obsessed with things and obsession so yeah you can interpret that however you want to thematically if you got some character reads to do or story beats what's uh, what's going on with this book and obsession Uh, So the way that I read obsession in this book is that it's the consumption of focus, sanity, and the consumption of self to like self as in like your personal identity, as well as like just like all aspects of your life, like time, thought processes, and and things like that. Um, So it's like not a good thing. (laughs) Obsession is bad, guys. Um according to the book. So <clears throat> what I focused on with that is um, the three main characters. Um, main characters. Arntails isn't really a main character, but he's like in the background a lot because he's the one who sets everything off in motion. Um, so I, I looked at Arntails, um, Ketterly, and Piranesi. Mm-hmm. So with um, with Arn Sales and with Ketterly both, um, their obsessions, which um, Arn Sales' obsession is with um, the house. Um, Ketterly is also with the house, but in his pursuit of power, getting power from the house. Arn Sales' obsession was the house, but the um getting people to believe in the house and getting people to the house mm, right. um and Piranesi actually has uh, a few different obsessions with each identity that he forms um but we'll get to that so with Arn sales um we've got like for like the idea of consumption um his ego is very much tied to his obsession um which is tied to uh, of course his sense of self so throughout um the descriptions of Arn sales and even when Piranesi kind of encounters him he's very sure of himself and he's like unapologetic in, in everything that he does. Um, he's more than likely a murderer, um, but he justifies that for himself um, in whatever ways. Um, he's also a cult leader, which ties, I think, to the sense of ego. Um, in all the documentaries that I've watched about cult leaders, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> um, popular they, genre these days. <clears throat> 
It really is. No shortage um, of you know footage to to be had there. Yeah, they're they're pretty gross individuals uh, for many reasons, um, and um, but their ego is like a huge aspect of their um, ability to to get people into um, their belief systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so he's a cult leader, essentially. I mean, there, we we discussed in the last episode about like his followers, disciples, whatever, as right. as members of a cult, essentially. Um, <clears throat> so cult leader, ego, and then his loss of humanity because he's a murderer. He also knows that Piranesi is, like, stuck in the house, but he doesn't offer to take him back. <laughs> yeah, that's and the police officer brings that up, too. It, it seems like, though, in from the legal uh, police perspective, like, that's not gonna... They can't quite charge him with it. It's not like he was the kidnapper groomer in this case, but, yeah, that scene takes on a eeriness. I mean, it was eerie at the time because, uh, you know... You know this person's in another world, and then another human shows up. It's you know you're like, how? Who's this? How did he get here? But it's way yeah, much more off-putting in retrospect because he even pays him a really condescending compliment too, a really backhanded compliment, kind of like I wasn't impressed with you when I first met you, but now it's like, huh? You're kind of in a you know, all right, Piranesi, you're kind of a worthwhile person. All right, see ya, and you know, leaves him. Yeah, <laughs> disappears. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he calls. I think he calls him like an ass, like a, an insufferable ass or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, and, um, he also, um, ultimately Arnsales does sacrifice himself in a way, not, not his life, but kind of his life in that he does go to prison. He willingly goes to prison, um, and kind of like martyrs himself in a way to Mm -hmm. try to, um, again advance that message of of um you know like the house is there and like i i am a kind of prophet and i know how to get people there just you know come and find me um so there's all of that ties to his obsession so there's like the the loss of himself he completely changes he's um a murderer he's a co-leader um and he sacrifices time and and freedom um, in pursuit of his obsession, um, right, which are right. all things that are not great. Um, if you want to have like a fulfilling, normal life. <laughs> yeah. We don't see a lot of the, anyone under Arn sales kind of disciple tree. We don't really see any other humanity about them. Exactly. And, the, and the woman, I forget her name, D'Agostino, I think, she even, you know, cuts off her f- family connections explicitly, which is pretty... Exactly. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Exactly. Um, and then with um, with Ketterly as well, it's, it's along the same lines where he's willing to murder, so there's that loss of his humanity as well. He's imprisoned Piranesi um, and kind of, like, makes fun of him for it, right? Like, by calling him Piranesi. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's lost his his connection to humanity in that way. Um, he he also has like ego that he needs um, people to recognize, which Piranesi points out several times in his journals. He's like, oh, he doesn't like to be argued with, even though he's wrong um, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And Arn Sales even is like, yeah, that Ketterly, he's just you know, he thinks he's so smart, but he's not. <laughs> like stuff right. like that. What a blowhard. Um, Exactly. Um, he also sacrifices himself um, in that he devotes so much of his time 
to the the labyrinth where he's like he's there twice a week right and he's um spending time with Perinesi in order to learn more about that and also the rituals that he comes up with so you know that he's not just spending time on the house when he's in the house but he must be doing research when he's back in the real world because he's coming back with new ideas and stuff like that too so his time is definitely something that's being sacrificed along with his humanity um and the idea of the the rituals they're they're like all encompassing for him to um to where he's um doing these things that Piranesi is like they're kind of they're kind of like ridiculous like they're they're not actually doing anything and and all this stuff um regardless there's um a lot of similarity there where the idea of like the obsession for Ketterly with with power and finding that power um has led to a complete change in who he is as a person and is again unable to find happiness to find fulfillment um in his life in that way yeah yeah that's um that's interesting he is it's did you find the scene when he's talking to rose Sorensen, like right before he convinces him and you know traps him in there did you find that maybe a little too i don't know abrupt or on the nose or something that was because it's such a brief book and so everything's done economically and i wasn't sure because the questions you know it's like does anyone know you're here it was just kind of like i thought maybe that conversation was a bit too I don't know, fast or something but i i think it also lays out his the things you've discussed with him though his like sacrifice he'll sacrifice anything it's you know he's yeah. single-minded that kind of thing yeah, yeah, and and also this is from Rose Sorensen's point of view because it was his journal entry. So Rose Sorensen, more so than Piranesi, was very much fact focused, um, right, and right. so he would only input information that he thought relevant to uh, whatever idea he was trying to express. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Any final thoughts on the Piranesi character? Then I mean, because he was pretty. He's an obsessive too. I think that's maybe why I picked this theme out is that I he was at the forefront of my mind. Like he might be the most obsessed in a way. Yeah, so with Paranesi, he's got essentially three different personas. So we've got Rose Sorensen, then we've got Piranesi, and then at the end we have some kind of blend of the two, but not really a blend because he doesn't quite relate to either Piranesi or Rose Sorensen anymore. But I think all three characters, all three personas, I should say, are are obsessive in, in a particular way. So with Rose Sorensen, he was um, obsessed with the idea of writing that book and obsessed with his note-taking and his journaling um, to the point where he completely disregards the threat from Ketterly. Like, I mean... Oh, does anybody know that you're you're here? Like immediately, that should have set off alarm bells. Yeah, and he <laughs> he asked it a couple different ways. It's like, yeah, exactly. Had, it's in my recollection, it's yeah, it's sort of like oh, so your family doesn't know about the project, or oh, you don't have any friends who you told you were coming here. It's yeah, it's yeah. pretty direct. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, which might also be like you know a sign of of even Rose Sorensen's kind of naivete in in that sense too is they're just trusting folk maybe both personas, um, 
But that that super focus on just getting that task done of finding the information so that he could find so that he could write that book. That was his obsession as Rose Sorensen. And ultimately what happens is that he um, allows himself to be sacrificed. Right. He's sacrificing himself and is thus trapped <laughs> in that mm, labyrinth mm-hmm. um, in the house. Um, the same with uh, Piranesi. Piranesi's obsession is with the house itself. Um, and also, like, I mean, like, yeah, with I would say with the house and with the rituals that he has created. And then later when he has that mystery, it is then the mystery. Um, so he's, I think as both personas once he has something in his mind he like can't let it go he's very determined to to accomplish what he has in his mind um and so there's um for the the Piranesi there's again like like Ketterly he has his own rituals and his own um rites that he performs uh, especially like for the dead um and with um his journaling is almost a ritual in a way too. It's very time consuming. Um, But then that's also like a a sacrifice of self where he's sacrificing his time. And sometimes even like, you know, his sense of well being, where he's like, he, instead of like storing up stuff to, to be prepared for like a disaster or anything like that, he's like spending time, um, taking care of birds and taking care of skeletons and stuff like that. He's tending um, house, keeping the house right, in order. Exactly. <laughs> yep. And um, he's also more likely to make bad decisions because of the obsession that he has. So trusting Ketterly as both Rose Sorensen and Paranesi, they see only the, the end goal. They only see the goal. They don't see the trappings around that. Um so again, all of this leads to the idea that there's a sense of like unhappiness, like obsession does not lead to fulfillment. Obsession leads to more issues, more troubles, more more questions. If we look at the final persona for uh, Piranesi, for the third persona that he has, where again, he's still obsessed with the idea of the house and he can't. He can't quite fit in with his new home. And so there's that feeling of emptiness. Again, he cannot feel fulfilled um, because of that obsession. Yeah, there's a we've teased the ending a couple times and haven't quoted it, but it's sort of like he's, you know, he's walking. It's cold. It's kind of a dreary day, but he sees some families. He sees some beauty. One of the final lines is about beauty, about how the world has contains, you know, the halls because of their repetitive nature and their simplicity. It like taught him to appreciate things maybe in a different way. So I, I kind of like that the ending played with that idea more that it presented a, this kind of like below average, maybe a bit of a gloomy day and that he's kind of taking the joy from it or seems to be able to appreciate it. And even though, yeah, he seems kind of lost maybe or listless, but it's not, it's not so bad. He's isolated, but it's, he can find some beauty in it anyway. So yeah, I think that I, I still thought the ending was, was excellent. Yeah, and the final line too is is so like perfect, I think, um, which is the beauty of the house is immeasurable, its kindness infinite. Like he's in the real world, but he's still thinking about the house and still thanking the house 
for for providing that beauty and and providing the the means for him to survive and stuff like that yeah yeah interesting okay i think a lot of my essay themes will overlap with yours so i don't think mine nice. i don't think mine's gonna yeah i don't mine won't take very long i don't think because i think you covered a lot of the key points um but go ahead and throw it out there i'll take yeah, it yeah my um so you were thinking about obsession i was thinking about um the the religious aspects so pyrenees uh, related to monotheistic religions ketterly to polytheistic religions and aren't sales to cults how do these ideas affect your understanding of the novel, especially in the second half and, and especially that last line of the novel? Yes. So the the twist response to the essay, of course, a fun thing that a person can always do with an essay is just immediately undercut the question because my <laughs> reading would be, I think they're all monotheistic figures, but they're just, okay. and this is where you covered it well, I think with the obsession angle. I think they're all just monotheistically obsessed with one. They have like a full key force in mind. Uh, even Arne Sales, I mean, his monotheism is... I, you could either say it's the, the kind of pre-rational way of thinking that he has clearly demonstrated is real. Like, <laughs> he figured out a way to do it, broke into a museum and stole some old, you know, decapitated heads to do it. Um, but or you could just read him as the monotheist of, like, he is the cult leader. He's the genius. He's the, you know, the person that should be admired and worshipped and sort of, like, followed or adhered to. It makes sense that he's critical of everyone else who seems to do what he can do, that he kind of in this petty way and his monotheistic self ego inflated way, just kind of critiques everybody else who seems to be able to do it. Um, but it's, yeah, I think on 221, this is when he takes the officer in and she's recording him. Um, he says this about himself because he had half a brain, Rose Sorensen, and he recognized that mine was one of the great intellects of the 20th century, perhaps the greatest of all. And he wanted to understand me. So he made the attempt to reach another world, not because he thought the other world existed, but because he thought the attempt itself would grant him insight into my thinking, into me. And now you're going to do the same. So I think that he's a pretty clear figure to read as a by, well, cult, I think he nailed it, the obsession with himself and the cult-like effect he had. But in a sense, he is the god of his monotheism. He's the, you know, his ego is the thing he obsesses over. The interesting twist again there is like he clearly has a respect for this pre-rational world that he discovered. So it's kind of a intriguing twist on that. But I would say he's his own monotheistic god. Um, and then Piernesi and Ketterly, it's interesting Ketterly, I suppose, is the closest to polytheistic, mostly just because he can't seem to define what he wants, which I think that's not quite what polytheism is, obviously. But polytheism also spreads the <laughs> spreads the devotion and worship around because it knows that it kind of inherently acknowledges that there's a lot of different things going on. <laughs> like you have to have different gods for different ideas, attributes traits parts of humanity um and i think ketterly maybe is kind of that way but then again it's pretty easy to boil his down to monotheism too because he just wants the great knowledge he believes in the halls but he just believes that he is there to extract something he's like a forced interloper type he doesn't really have a place there he doesn't even want to be there he put, he knows he can't stay he wants to escape and doesn't you know he schedules his visits very purposefully but i still find that kind of to be monotheistic because he has the one he has the one meaning and the one answer it's just that maddeningly it's a puzzle to him it's like he it's a monotheism where he can't even really define the god that he worships 
if that makes sense. Do you find, um, with your reading of him as kind of a polytheist, what are the connections or threads for that? Because again, I, I read him as a pretty single-minded devotee of one entity or one, you know, he it's like he and Piranesi monotheistically worship the house, but they just do it from opposite ends. So what's your polytheism for him? Just in a, in a broad way. Um, so for for me, like the the polytheism for me with with Ketterly is related to um, the way that he speaks specifically of the ancient power, where the ancient mm-hmm. powers come from uh, the polytheistic rituals, the the pagan rituals that there right. were. Even his his rituals that he performs are very pagan based, like. And the, the idea of, like, a temple, and he's using the stars, the constellations, as a source of power, that's very uh, pagan, very, I think, polytheistic in a way. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, like, his his rationale to me was, I suppose, more of, like, the, the polytheistic thinking um, versus, mm-hmm. like, Piranesi. Yeah, I think... I suppose then... I don't know that those are yeah like temp having rituals temples even star interpretation like monotheistic religions do those things too and have those structures and situations going on like the the what the heavens mean who inhabits them what it you know places of worship like it's no but they literally I guess it can't be ignored like they literally access these things with like you said pagan kind of connections pre they keep calling it pre-rational thought so so in that way I mean I guess they're all Maybe this is where I'm ending up here. Is like they're all literally polytheistic pagans because they need it. They like they cannot get to the house without it. That is the thing that gives them access directly. It doesn't seem like there's a, isn't it hinted at that there's another way to get in, but they never really dis- I know that Arn Sales and Ketterly have different methods of entering, but it's never I guess we don't see Arn Sales approach. He just has a different way. <laughs> he can do it like with his mind and Ketterly does it through ritual. But I yeah, I still find I guess I still find their interpretations like their theology to be very monotheistic. I, I guess is where I I guess that's where I took my interpretation less in the habits more in the the end goal or sort of the end meaning because they they both have a singular I don't know, thing that they can derive meaning from and that they can ascribe meaning to. There doesn't seem to be complexity in the, I don't know, in the polytheistic pantheon sort of way of framing things. Um, and then, oh yeah, let's let's end this with Piranesi too, because he's the most obvious character. I I find him and Ketterly, in, again, my, my way of doing this one would be to kind of pose them as monotheistic, but it's just that their practice is different. Like they both... They're both, you know, Christians, quote unquote, but one is like Southern Baptist and one is like a casual, I go for Christmas service and never go again throughout the year kind of a vibe. <laughs> um, and I actually don't know who is who in that analogy, to be honest with you. Maybe Piranesi's the Southern Baptist type. But the the key thing, though, th- that defines Piranesi is the his approach to the house is about communing with it and listening to it. And Ketterly's is demanding of it and trying to extract, you know, it's extraction versus, and, and the irony of course, is that Piranesi ends up extracting way more because he respects and communes with it and listens and understands what the house has and doesn't have. He doesn't force anything like his connections and appreciations of it are very pure and very direct. It's like, he's not going to try and make it into something. It's not, it's meaningful enough. We've alluded to this symbolically, but of course, 
course, you know, Ketterly is killed by the house, the wave flushed away in his sin, his sin of not understanding what its purpose is, his sin of not even comprehending what the house is like and how it functions. And of course, Piranesi is able to, because of his genuine connection to it, it overcomes that and, and is not killed. So I think that's like the moment that <laughs> clearly the book separates them there. That's pretty obvious. Um, but yeah, no, I think he, I think his defending of the halls, these are the two moments from the second half I want to allude to quickly. Um, he defends the halls on 222 when the officer sort of critiques them. It's an indirect critique. She didn't mean to be rude, but sort of she talks about how it's not the real thing. Uh, here you can only see a representation. Uh, and he says, this annoys me. I do, I do not see why you say I can see only a representation, I said with some sharpness. The word only suggests a relationship of inferiority. You make it sound as if the statue is somehow inferior to the thing itself. I do not see that is the case at all. I would argue the statue is superior to the thing itself. The statue being perfect, eternal, and not subject to decay. Which is interesting and also a bit flawed because some of the statues fall apart. He's seen it happen, right? They break, the roof collapsed in one <laughs> section. and um, But I understand that his sort of defensiveness, obviously, of the world he knows. And also there's maybe a truth to it where it's sort of like the way we memorialize things can be more meaningful than the thing itself, perhaps. I don't know if I would believe that, but I understand the, the feeling behind it. Um, and so he has this kind of worship that Ketterly just doesn't have. And I, I, that's my, I guess when I got that essay question, my main thought was like, I really think him and Ketterly are similar monotheists, but they're just like different sects or sort of they have different approaches to the same worship of the same entity or something. Um, and then, oh, uh, the only thing we haven't also discussed thematically, let me throw this in here too, before we wrap the essays, the fact that he takes James Ritter back and sort of communes with him and helps him and guides him shows like a level of respect for the house that like Ketterly obviously could, would never. <laughs> That's completely antithetical. Like Ketterly traps people there to extract and steal knowledge and try and you know, mine things like literal mining almost. And of course him taking Ritter, being respectful, understanding the emotional component to that and the kind of beauty of the house and having that empathy about it is like, that's really, again, other than the wave moment, the ocean wave moment, I thought that was pretty telling too about how they have different approaches to the same, maybe God. So there's some, there's some religious thoughts. Any, any thoughts about Piranesi's monotheism or any follow up there? No, that's a, I think that's a great way actually to put it is that they're <clears throat> two different denominations essentially of of the yeah. same idea of, of the house as this this entity. So yeah, I, they, I think that's really well put. I think putting them up through that lens would be yeah, I think it's like a fruitful way to see their I don't know, approach. Arn Sales was really the wild card in this one cuz you're right, yeah. it is cultish, but there's monotheism to that too. It's just that I guess in cults, maybe that sometimes happens is that they kind of not ascribe, but they almost steal religious language in a way to cover their own ends. Like clearly mm. they just want to be worshipped, but they'll use the other ways to kind of get people to convince them to start. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense, but yeah. So no, excellent. That is, um, that's my thoughts on the religious chatter, which yeah, paired well with the obsession. Pretty similar, I think in a lot of ways yeah. thematically. So, all right. Any any follow up on the themes before we jump to the other segments? 
Uh, I don't think so. I think Excellent. I'm right. All right, let's do critical assistance. This is our second to last segment on our book club part two, where we go to a article or a book review or maybe a YouTube video or something, some kind of outside criticism, and we talk about that criticism, discuss what we thought of it, pick some quotes from it, talk about it. What did you bring, Amanda? Why don't we start with yours? What's your critical assistance? Sure. Mine came from the Wall Street Journal. Ooh, new sources. I also pulled yeah. a new source today, I think on purpose, or at least I hope I did. But yeah, let's. what's the WSJ got to say about a <laughs> fantasy novel? Yeah. <clears throat> so this is by Sam Sachs, and it's called Pyrenees Review, a fantastic puzzle from Susanna Clark, the author of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell Returns with a Mysterious Work for the Locked In Era. So this was obviously written during uh, the pandemic. Um, He says, though Piranesi is comparatively brief, it winks at the great quest epics organized around the hunt for some lost ancient power. It is also what you might think of as an academic thriller in the vein of Umberto Eco or Dan Brown. So I pulled that because I was like, oh, we talked briefly about like that. We compared it briefly with Dan Brown um, in the last Hmm. episode where where you and I discussed that a little bit. Um, And... I, I when it's called an academic thriller, I, I had to stop and think. I was like, "Is it? Is it an academic thriller?" I think that it's. I mean, the it's written journalistic, and it's like written as though it's like a research project. But yeah. really, I don't. I, well, I think otherwise. I don't the know. P- the place where it geniusly diverts or um, diverges rather is that because Piranesi is such a unique main character. It's yeah, he's like a scientist, but like a sci- It's like a scientist brain inside of a five year old brain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah. of his childlike in existence and his forget. You know, he's basically his memory wiped, but not really. It's like he maintained a sort of authority professionalism but also is like a child too it's a really genius character twist but sure i I would accept that description it's just that of course if you call it that it's like well the main character tosses that all into complication exactly yeah um and then he says uh, but because Miss Clark's novel assumes Piranesi's point of view, the narrative is related by way of his journal entries, these standard plot elements appear blurry and distorted as though refracted through water. The happy reversal in this novel is that the genre conventions pitting power mad villains against crusading good guys are entirely foreign to Piranesi and for much of the novel beyond his comprehension. His real world is simply the house. Piranesi is a high-quality page-turner, even the most leisurely reader will probably finish it off in a day, but its chief pleasure is immersion in its strange and uncannily attractive setting. So I totally agree with the the setting. It's like, it's so spare, but it's so beautifully described that it's, and it's so unique in, in a way. So it's like, it that's right. really um, a, a huge um, quality that, that I appreciated for the novel. And then also... The idea of, uh, he says that the narrative, um, the plot elements appear blurry and distorted as though through refracted, um, refracted through water. I was like, oh, that's a nice way to put that. And it is, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very well done and very fitting. I mean, you know, the tides and stuff. So, um, but yeah, I agree that it's like, it could, it's, it is generally just, again, the idea of like the, the bad guy is power hungry and the good guy prevails in the end. Kind of. Yeah. No, that's um, true. But it's, it's, so it's a basic story plot line, but it's, 
it's really unique in the way that it's told and the way it's presented. Certainly. it's it That first half, we complimented a lot on these grounds and can reiterate those compliments here. It's just mm-hmm. such a difficult thing that it pulled off to make such a bland place so fascinating, immersive, and kind of feel whole, like a whole world, even though it's you know, if you did the one sentence description of that world, it would be like a, you know, it would just doesn't have a, it's compelling in the premise, but not in the maybe pure description, visual type of immersive setting right. type place, especially for fantasy, yeah. which can be so, so fantastical, so elevated. Yeah. One of the great things the book does for sure. Yeah. Agreed. Um, he goes on to say, Miss Clark is a cool and meticulous stylist. Um, but the territory she evokes transcends rationality. Piranesi perceives meanings and weather patterns and the flight of birds, the statues, each representing a scene or story, form a legible text that imparts warnings and encouragements. Um, establishing that sense of totality and the feeling of peacefulness that accompanies it is Miss Clark's standout feat. Hmm. And I totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I think there's a few standout feats, but that's, yeah, I like that summary of it. That's a pretty solid way to put it, I think, too. It's a very, yeah. it feels very gentle and it makes you curious because I, I think the the narrative or the narrator is maybe my, for my money, the probably best accomplishment, but it blends in so well with what that author said, too. So, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, just a couple more points. The book merges with another liter- literary genre, the puzzle novel, whereby Piranesi pieces together clues, some buried in his early journals, some from pages that have been torn up and woven by seagulls into their nests to uncover the other's true identity as well as his own. This is neatly done and it will keep you reading, but it does shift the focus of the book away from its capacious world building to the practical mechanics of its plot. The trouble with the puzzle novel is that the story becomes so concerned with its solution that it ceases to pay attention to the image it reveals. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, It seems like the way that he's saying it is that like the second half of the novel for him just like completely changes the focus of the novel itself. Um, Because the second novel is where we get more of that, that the solving of the mystery and, and the pursuit of, of, figuring things out which it does there is a a definite shift in the middle of that of the novel from world building fantasy just like exploring the world to i need to figure out what's going on yeah yeah and i it's hard to i guess measure those things against each other but i i might be on board the thing is though that the I think some of the most powerful scenes are in the ending both when he returns again i think the final chapter is quite well done but also i would say like some of the exchanges with the police officer and how they have to talk about the world and how she's kind of delicate with him sensitive to his issues and i don't yeah i found some of that stuff really meaningful too but i think maybe the journal like long journal entries just it yeah it's a little maybe too explicit but in a book of this length too at what can you do it's i I found it compelling i guess and i yeah it didn't put me off i didn't think it was poorly done i'm also we learned this on a previous book uh, that we covered. I'm not really a mystery type of reader, though, so I, I don't know if my right. standards are quite aligned with <laughs> genre, you know, obsessives or something. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, if so. if you're not fully immersed in it, it's, it's tough to. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> his final point 
It is probably inescapable that Piranesi should undergo a disenchantment of a kind, and that the captivating mystery of its setting pass into a generic mystery in which the point is to figure out what has happened and learn how things will end. But as the ending unfolded, I admit that I was wistful for those earlier passages when Piranesi was still innocent of the complicated novel being constructed around him, serene in the belief that nothing other than his house was real. And I was thinking about that. I was like, so he liked the first half better than the second half is is essentially what he's saying. Um, And that he felt that the second half was just too focused on the idea of like the the mystery and the unraveling of the mystery. So it was too much like a typical mystery novel. But I I don't know that I agree. I, I enjoyed the second half just as much because there was still so much of that character work and there were still so many descriptions of like the beauty of the house, especially like with Raphael when they're walking through there's still this enjoyment of the house and this like luxuriating in in the the way that the house is portrayed so i i don't know that i agree with the idea that just because it turns into a mystery novel it somehow loses value or it's no longer as enticing a read right right um, because of that yeah and i think the the beginning is yeah has so many beautiful moments too for the halls to be this fantastical land and Piranesi's obsession with them that yeah I, I don't I didn't find it to have a first half back half maybe the way we divided it was part of how that I didn't read it that way because of how mm-hmm. we cut it directly in half but no I th- I think a lot of these descriptions I agree with and I, I didn't feel yeah I didn't I didn't feel the sort of back half faltering that maybe this person kind of did so yeah yeah. Yeah. That was it. A slight disenchantment. Yeah, I felt quite enchanted with and I think maybe in the back half it's more about the character moments and seeing again, I think some of the exchanges between the cop and and Piranesi were some of the most interesting. I did find actually I yeah. flagged a page I never discussed, but I think there was one little detail that did kind of annoy me in the ending where maybe some of the thematic stuff was getting explained a little too clearly. Like there were some maybe there were some tidy I mean I don't think the ending is tidy. I think it's really emotionally interesting. But I there was there was some line I can't remember now. I'm not gonna pick it up at this word over an hour in, but <laughs> there was one line at the end where I just kinda shrugged and was like, eh, okay, it's you know, maybe a little too direct, but that's you know, I think that's okay. Not the worst sin in a book that otherwise is not like that at all. So to have yeah. a few sentences like that at the end. Okay. Mine is from a pop culture website, The Ringer. I listen to a lot of podcasts through, the, through that you know entity, through The Ringer, but uh, their website still does analysis, criticism, and there's some, some pretty good writing on there. It's very sports-heavy, pop culture-heavy. But this is by Brian Phillips. The reason I want to pull this one is because I really like Brian Phillips. He's one of my favorite nonfiction authors. He's got some great essays and like reportage out there so i was just intrigued when i saw his name i was like okay yeah i'll I'll definitely read something by brian phillips apparently they had him doing a book review series i don't know if that's continuing but so anyway um it's a pretty long article too and like it seems like yours a lot of this article was comparing this to her other large novel the dr strange and mr norell which i know people really love it's a beloved book it's also huge it's a massive tome (laughs) it's like a 900 page book so anyway um i tried to 
to pull some quotes that don't just compare them. Um, the first one, even by fantasy standards, though, the what if premise behind Piranesi, Susanna Clarke's long awaited new novel is a doozy. What if there was a house so large it contained an entire ocean? What if the house, an endless succession of enormous classical halls lined with marble statues separated by grand staircases and vestibules was so vast that it made it impossible to say how large it was because no one had ever even seen all of it? What if one person set out to explore it? And I think the only thing he doesn't mention there is that it's also executed so carefully and brilliantly. But I I think I wanted to praise it, too, because it does make for an immediately engaging idea. And I think the visuals, like you noted before, some of the subtle visuals, some of the way that she narrates it is just extremely delicate and kind of perfect. So I, I also appreciated the premise. Yeah, me too. Um. Another quote, the novel then unfolds like a puzzle with new revelations arriving at a steady pace slowly, though a little more quickly than Piranesi himself. We deduce what the house is and why he lives in it. And then he says he doesn't want to spoil it, but he founds it really... He finds the magic very beautiful, is what he says. At times, the tick, tick, tick of information makes the plot seem a little too easy. Once Piranesi starts looking into his past, the journey to the solution occasionally seems to be on rails, with new discoveries arriving reliably, regardless of what Piranesi does or whether he does anything at all. In fairness, there's a kind of classical elegance to this unfolding that echoes the structure of the many-hauled house, and if Piranesi seems to find the quest for truth less arduous than a good detective novel, the novel is also required to solve a much naughtier mystery. A dead body in a locked room is one thing, 13 dead bodies in a mansion sealed off from reality and containing an indoor sea is something else, and unlike in most detective novels, the answers in Piranesi are every bit as satisfying as the questions. So there's some a couple interesting twists in how he reads the mystery element, essentially that because the premise is so much more elevated that it's okay if the solution is a little more clear and obvious, which I think in general, I guess I would buy that kind of math where it's sort of the more you stack against the reader in terms of believability and possibility, then the less you have to stack in the like, how complicated am I going to make this solution sort of an energy. I think that's not a bad way of assessing this. I'm not sure if you read it that way too, or felt that way. Yeah, for sure. I think that makes total sense. It's not something that I had, because I also don't read a whole lot of mysteries. Um, but that, that makes total sense to me where, yeah, if it's, if it's more realistic, then you don't have to put as much into... Um, like creating these fantastical solutions to things. Yeah, right. Yeah. And the on rails part too, I think I felt that the most when the moment that he finds the rock writing and like responds. At that point, I was like, well, you know, this infinite halls and he keeps stumbling into exactly where he needs to sort of a thing. And he keeps, you know, finding how how can I progress the plot sort of an energy to the story. But I, in a book of this length though, I accept that. It's weird. I, because, you know, obviously plot contrivances can be frustrating, but it didn't, yeah, it didn't bother me when I was reading it. I also think, of course, because the character I was so invested in and interested by, um, and because the setting is really beautiful and spare and interesting, I, yeah, these things just didn't bug me as much. It's, it goes to show you, Amanda, that the other mystery book we covered recently, when the writing is, when the writing is arduous to re- read, when it's really cliched and kind of painstakingly bland it it the mystery doesn't matter so you know when you're setting your character work is incredibly subtle and beautiful and interesting it doesn't you know some of the plot stuff can kind of just be like eh, you know whatever i'm just here for the exploration 
And the final quote I wanted to talk about is a bit more thematic. So like you noted earlier, this book came out, I think, in quarantine. It must not have been written during that time, obviously. (laughs) She also had like a 15-year period where she didn't publish anything. So who knows when in that time she finished it. Anyway, but so there was a lot of thematic hand-wringing about that and interpreting it in that lens. Um, This is what Philip says about one of those elements. He says, I don't have any definite answers, and I hope there aren't any definite answers, but I can tell you what I've been thinking about. First, I thought about imagination, the idea of being trapped in a vast structure full of images of indeterminate significance, simultaneously feeling sustained by its beauty and lonely in its isolation. I don't know, does that remind you of anything? That's, I think, his COVID reference. The experience of dwelling inside your own mind. The title of the novel refers, obviously, to the artistic, um, or sorry, the art artist Giovanni Battista Piranesi, famed in the 18th century for his etchings of imaginary prisons. The fictional Piranesi inhabits the ultimate imaginary prison, but instead of feeling trapped by it, he learns to love it, to know its rhythms and beauties, and to see it as a beautiful world unto itself. What if the basic impulse behind fantasy novels were a fantasy novel, I thought, wouldn't it look a lot like this? Which I think is true. It's, um... You know, good clever bit of rhetoric there to turn the definition in that in that way, or sort of interpret it in the meta sense through its own fan- fantasy appeal lens or something. But it does, I think, it does something significant that I always cry out for, which is you don't have to have the most elaborate or intensive thing is if the language and the approach is really thoughtful and well executed and really beautiful. And this book just does it you know, perfectly. It's sort of a beautiful examination of a very small premise in a, in a sense. I think it's a genius premise and works perfectly, but it is kind of a small, simple thing. And so, but by treating it in a very careful way and crafting kind of the perfect narrator for it to inhabit and think it over. And so, yeah, this, this fictional Piranesi, this trapped in his prison, but the, seeing the beauty in it, it works, really works on all levels. So I thought that was a nice way of, of putting it. Yeah, it definitely is. And as you were saying, like, finding the beauty in it, I was like, what is that called? The the Stockholm syndrome or whatever? <laughs> yeah, like, in, the, in the kidnapping sense, it is called that. It's when you, when you finally <laughs> accept your captor and sort of defend your captor. Yeah, to love which is them. what Piranesi does when he, like, forgets that Ketterly is the guy that, mm-hmm. you know, trapped him there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a rich book to read on in, in, I think, several themes. I know we fixated on the religion obsession. Even in the first half, we picked up on that, too. Sort of yeah. secular versus religious beliefs and how these people approach the halls. But I think there are other interesting... I think reading it in this sense of sort of what is it like as a fantasy novel, as a genre novel, how does it fit in that format, mm-hmm. is a very, I think, yeah. interesting... I, we almost didn't approach it that way it's interesting that we didn't but i think that's because i just sometimes crave fantasy series that are not so just basically not so long and and world building uh heavy rule heavy and history heavy those things are fun i love doing those things but this is um yeah a great other way to approach fantasy so i appreciated that you picked up on that thread yeah. Any other thoughts yeah, we on that? Not really talked about it as a genre, but yeah, yeah, we really, yeah, we didn't much. You just paid. Maybe that makes us the ultimate recommendation then for new new folks to the genre. Yeah. I was at a, this will date this recording, obviously, <laughs> but I was at an Easter thing the other day, like a friend's kind of brunch, lunch um, event thing. And I mentioned this book to somebody. There's a person there who I 
who I know it's like a friend's mom and she's a big reader. So we always talk books whenever I see her. And I, I mentioned this on those grounds too. I was like, Oh, you know, it's fantasy, but it's really short and it's not a series, which are two. I think you got to kind of start with mm-hmm. those two, I don't know, pitches, but then I kind of talked about the mystery elements and how the narrators. Yeah. It's like fascinating kind of naive kind soul. And it's just kind of fun to watch him unweave things so yeah yeah very recommendable i think to the to the outsiders any other thoughts on the critical assistance uh nope i'm good all right let's let's close this down uh we're going to end with our hall of fame segment we end all uh, book club part twos with our lightly literary (laughs) tongue twisted here at the end the the lightly (laughs) literary hall of fame which is when we induct some element of the book into it even if we didn't like the book and of course if we loved it then we'll pick an element to praise this should be easy or maybe hard because we both seem to love this one (laughs) so yeah there's so many things to love about it (laughs) i know i know i would just this is an easy one where maybe we'll turn this segment into a yes no system Ooh, maybe i'm just brainstorming now in real time i'm going to keep all this in what if the lightly literary hall of fame was let's say 10 percent of the books we read had to go in so currently we could only put five in and then Mm -hmm. every episode at the end we have to decide should it be in one of the five and which one should we replace it with that's kind of an interesting way to do it a little voting at the end or a little debate segment Oh, I let's like not, that. Let's not do that now because I literally just made that up. <laughs> uh, no one was prepared for that. Let's just do our normal way, and then we can we'll revisit that idea later. But uh, what what do you want to yeah. induct from the book? Um, for me, my my favorite thing is I think that. Um, Clark did has the best use of a spare environment. The way that mm, she yeah. utilizes it for for atmosphere and also for like. Um, a little bit of world building, but also to create an entity out of that, a character almost out of that environment. I, I think that she just did a wonderful job with with something that you wouldn't think would be that exciting to read about considering it's just a bunch of statues. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's like I joked before in the first part, especially it's if you were to describe it in a kind of an unkind way, it would be like, well, that's the most boring place ever, but it's so rich, <laughs> but it's so interesting and rich of a, yeah, of a setting. So yeah, uh, mine is similar ish. It's I'm inducting the best use of a fantastical premise, which I'm kind of stealing the language from the Brian Phillips piece, the what if I think it's probably mm-hmm. the most genius simple but engaging what if for a fantasy it's not too complex at the beginning it's obviously strange in its way it makes readers curious maybe at least lean in and like wonder but i also think it's kind of straightforward in a sense too where it's like okay yeah, i get the basic premise of this i understand what it's asking but then it's it's just just complex enough or like just rich enough just strange enough just yeah it's just perfect and doesn't feel overwhelming at the beginning Yeah. yeah so yeah, perfect setting, perfect balance. Like you said, uses the spareness well. Yeah, phenomenal all around. But I think we both really love this one. Maybe it would go yeah, in the top sure. five. I, we'll have to rethink that segment, and maybe we'll change it next time. <laughs> yeah. But that's, yeah, interesting. Okay. Any final thoughts on Pure Nessie by Susanna Clark? Nope, I'm good. I'd be lying if I said I feel torn because my, my two-read you know, book list is already so long, but I do kind of want to just go buy that other of her novels. And it's so monstrous though, in size, (laughs) it's real. I think it is like a thousand pages. Oh, have you read it? I have not. So it was a gift to me. Um, I can't remember who gave it to me. Um, and I just like, (laughs) never got a chance to read it 
because it's so big and like it's kind of like the Game of Thrones series. Like, yeah, it's it's something where you have to like really be into it, I think, in order to get through it. So I just have not had that that headspace yet to where I've I've wanted to tackle that book. Yeah. And it's um, more I knew I the thing I knew about it was that it's about magic but not in a fun way, maybe in kind of a more reserved way. And then also right. it's about like is it 18th or 19th century, but it's definitely historical in the languages. So yeah. it's kind of like what if wizards were formal gentlemen of the 18th or 19th century. <laughs> and so right. that's the it's an intriguing premise it's like what if charles dickens but wizards kind of a vibe i guess i don't know if that's accurate yeah. um, and i think her writing would be more accessible though i don't i've always found dickens really challenging to read it just doesn't yeah. i don't know there's a certain weight to it that i feel like unlike other classic authors i just never was able to crack into it anyway enough enough asides but i do want to read that book and i'm very curious because this is an excellent first novel to read by an author um we yeah. hope you stuck around to the end and we thank you as always for doing so we appreciate the the listen in and the discussion Hopefully it was enjoyable for you. We have other books coming up, so if you're curious about what we've got on the agenda, Amanda will tell you about those next in order. Um, next up, we have a collection of letters. Um, it's called 84 yeah. Charing Cross Road by Helen Honf. Um, and then we have, after that, The Intuitionist by Colson Whitehead. Um, and that is a, a novel. I think it's and another like investigative, maybe like a noirish type thing. Ooh, um, okay. Whitehead's an author we loved before, so we're going back. Right. Yeah. Um, and then we have In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. So that one is a real also classic nonfiction. Yeah. A real, yeah, big, big classic. Taught in school is kind of a classic. Mm-hmm. We'll see if it holds up. Okay. Yep. Yeah, as ever, thanks for listening. Rate us on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you're at. It helps a ton. Helps spread the word. So five-star ratings, if you have the time. We appreciate that. And again, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We're at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word. So pretty easy to find and follow. And until next time, listeners, we'll see you between the pages. <laughs> <laughs>